Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and we're going to be doing a special interview today, but I've invited my wife's uncle, a world-class geologist, to help with the interview. This is Neil Livingston. Glad to be on the show today. Today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Hugh Ross about the passing of Dr. Stephen Hawking. Some might consider Dr. Ross the Christian counterpart to Dr. Hawking, a world-class scientist with uh, an incredible ability to defend the Christian faith, and I think he's done a great job of responding to some of Hawking's criticisms against faith and against our view of God. And so I thought it would be really special to have him on the show today talking about Dr. Hawking. Now, as we consider Stephen Hawking's life, it goes without saying that the man was a genius, just a world-class genius, and he did so much for science and for human understanding. And even beyond that, the way he lived his life, in spite of the prognosis of ALS and how that just robbed him of so much of his life, Yet at the same time, he persisted in making the most of what he had, and he did a great job with that. So we really have a lot to thank Hawking for as far as the way he lived his life and all of his contributions to science. And also at the same time, we have some profound disagreements theologically with some of his views. And we're going to talk to Dr. Hugh Ross today about some of Stephen Hawking's views and why some of those are not valid. So it's going to be a great show where we remember Stephen Hawking for his accomplishments and for some of the great things that he left us with. And at the same time, we're going to discuss some of his theories and why they were off track. Well, that being said, we're going to invite Dr. Ross to join us on the air. This will be the first interview with him uh, in a long time, but we're going to be interviewing him again next week about his fourth edition of The Creator and the Cosmos. Dr. Ross, welcome back to the God Solution Show. Glad to be with you, Phillips. Hey, well, this past week, we all heard of Dr. Stephen Hawking passing away. He was an amazing physicist, cosmologist, scientist, the author of A Brief History of Time and many other books. He also was an inspiration to so many who watched him live an amazing life in spite of his ALS. Uh, I know you uh, wrote an article on that. Where could people find that? It's on my Facebook page, so just put Hugh Ross Facebook, and it was posted on March 14th. And so, yeah, I talk about uh, my personal encounters with him and uh, just how he impacted me. Awesome. I've, I've got a question. What, what do you think some of uh, Stephen Hawking's greatest achievements were? What do, you, what do you consider his greatest achievements? Well, probably the space-time theorems. I mean, that's what launched him to worldwide fame. Uh, then afterwards, it was his work on black holes, uh, especially where he discovered that uh, because of quantum mechanics, black holes eventually will become white holes, but you've got to wait a really, really long time before that happens. The universe is way too young for there to be any white holes. But yeah, the space-time theorems, I think, are the most significant because they actually establish a causal agent beyond space and time 
must have created our universe. How do you think this story is, is enhanced by uh, how he overcome his medical prognosis? How did that impact uh, the people around the globe who you know, viewed his work? Well, uh, I remember him saying at uh, Caltech, a lecture I attended, that uh, you know, all of you think I'm the most brilliant physicist in the world. He says, that's not true. Uh, I have an advantage over all of you. I can't play golf. I can't fish. I can't hike. Uh, and moreover, because of my disability, I don't have administrative responsibilities as a professor at Cambridge University. I got a light teaching load. He says, I get to spend all of my time doing theoretical physics. The rest of you, uh, you're diverted. Uh, you're distracted. And he says, because of my singular focus, I'm able to be the physicist that I am. You meant quite often about living with Asperger's syndrome. Do you think that impacts your research somewhat like Hawkins? In spite of having a normal body, I find it relatively easy to focus. And, uh, yeah, that does enable me to do things. I've also noted that because of the Asperger's syndrome, uh, I have an easy time integrating complex subjects. And that's a lot of what I do at Reasons to Believe, is integrate research material from many different scientific disciplines, and likewise with the Bible, many different books of the Bible. And so I think my Asperger's has given me an advantage. And if you look in 2 Corinthians 4, it basically is an exhortation God wants to shine through your weaknesses. Don't crack, don't try to hide the faults and weaknesses. Let God's glory shine through them. And so I encourage people, yes, take advantage of your strengths, but also use your weaknesses. That's a great encouragement. And being in full-time ministry, I think quite often I encounter people who feel like their weaknesses are the things that make ministry impossible for them. And it's encouraging to see you actually flipping that, kind of like what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 12 and saying, I'm going to rejoice in this, that Christ might be glorified uh, through my situation. So thanks for your example. Yeah, we all have weaknesses. We all have gifts and strengths, and we're to use them all for the glory of God. Amen. I, I think we all agree that Stephen Hawking was an amazing individual, and I don't want anything that we say on this show to detract from that or to come across differently. I also recognize that we probably don't all agree with his perspectives on the Creator and his relationship to the cosmos. And I just wanted to ask a few questions about some of his perspectives, some of his atheistic views, and what you think about that. So Hawking wrote in The Grand Design that it was not necessary to invoke God in explaining the universe, and that because there is a law such as gravity— the universe can and will create itself from nothing. What's wrong with that statement? Well, a couple of things are wrong with it. Number one, the nothing he's talking about is not nothing. <laughs> right. The law of gravity is something. Exactly. And the other thing is that the law of gravity describes the nature of the universe. It doesn't have creative power. It's simply descriptive of what's already there. And so what I see Hawking doing here is something that Paul addressed in Romans 1, how when people reject the authority of God over their life, uh, they will manifest the tendency to attribute to the natural realm divine attributes. And so that's kind of what I see him doing in the later research in his life, things like saying, well, uh, maybe the universe has imaginary time as well as real time. And so he's basically saying the universe is not constrained 
to linear time. Well, that's true of God. God's not constrained in linear time, but all the evidence, all the empirical evidence, tells us that everything in the universe, including the universe itself, really is constrained in linear time. You know, years ago I read an article, I think it was in the Scientific American, that was written by uh, Michael Shermer, and he said, if we call, and he went into a whole list of things, energy, gravity, all these different things, if we call that nothing, then we can easily get something from nothing. <laughs> I thought the same thing. How in the world could you call that nothing, Shermer? That's kind of what's going on here, right? If we kind of change terms, then we can come up with a, an, ex, an explanation for the universe. But it's a little bit of a trick, right? Well, another non-theistic physicist, uh, Lawrence Krauss, wrote a book, A Universe from Nothing. But every nothing he described was something. In fact, I wound up giving a message in a church, everything you want to know about nothing, and made the point that physicists talk about nine different kinds of nothing, <laughs> but all their nothings are really something. So it's not actually getting the universe from nothing. They are getting it from something, like, say, a space-time quantum fluctuation. You know, it doesn't have matter or energy, but that quantum space-time fluctuation can be used to produce matter and energy. Yahoo News today wrote that an interview with Reuters in 2007, Hawking said, I believe the universe was governed by the laws of science, but conceded that the laws may have been decreed by God. But God does not intervene to break the laws. What do you make of that? Well, uh, God is consistent. I mean, when people say that God is all-powerful and can do anything he wants, they need to realize that God will not violate his character. It's impossible for God to lie. Uh, it's impossible for God not to love. And so uh, God self-contrains himself in light of his uh, personal attributes and character qualities. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, Hawking's got a point there. Um, and I think that explains why a lot of people said, well, maybe God created an infinite number of universes. If he created an infinite number of universes where they're all different, maybe that God doesn't have to be involved in designing the universe for the benefit of us human beings. With an actual infinite where they're all different, one by chance will have all the characteristics. There was another atheist physicist, Leonard Susskind, who pointed out the fatal flaw in that line of reasoning, uh, where he said, that's an explanation that explains everything. And if it explains everything, it explains nothing. And so I actually address that in my new book, The Crater in the Cosmos, and say if you actually got an infinite number of universes where they're all different, one of those universes will have trees that are like birch trees that peel white bark. And one of those species of birch trees will peel white bark that is 8.5 by 11 inches. And they will fall on the ground in an infinite number of universes, uh, there will be soil on one of the uh, infinite number of planets that will make markings on those pieces of bark, birch bark that fall on the soil, and those markings will actually make all the symbols and letters and equations that are in, in every research paper that Stephen Hawking published. So we could conclude, based on the multiverse, that all those papers that Stephen Hawking claimed to have published he didn't write them. The multiverse did it. <laughs> and so the problem is it explains away all design, not just God's design, but every bit of design. And you're basically pointing out 
that when the non-theist appeals to a multiverse, they're being philosophically inconsistent. I think it's interesting that he admitted that the laws of nature may have been decreed by God. I was watching an episode of Curiosity once when Hawking said something like, matter pops into existence all the time. To the scientifically illiterate, I think that statement seemed to explain why God was not necessary. But obviously, you if you know a little bit about science, I know he wasn't saying that there was a violation of the first law of thermodynamics or anything like that. What was Hawking really referring to? Yeah, he was referring to virtual particle production, uh, where we can actually prove that quantum space-time fluctuations produce these particles. But we call them virtual particles because according to the laws of quantum mechanics, they have to revert back to the quantum space-time foam before the human observer can actually measure and detect the particles. And the snapback time is under a trillionth of a second. Now, if you're trying to appeal to quantum space-time fluctuations uh, to produce the universe, the snapback time is less than 10 to the minus 120th second. So that's decimal point with 119 zeros between the decimal point and the one. And clearly, by anybody's model, the universe is much older than that very tiny split second. So that, that, that doesn't explain where the universe came from. It only explains how you can get virtual particles. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. Today we're talking with Dr. Hugh Ross about the passing of Stephen Hawking. Thanks so much for listening. I was talking to a physicist student at UNM once. He was a candidate for a PhD, and he tried to say that this was evidence that God is not needed and uh, that we could have the whole universe coming from nothing. And I just asked him, are you trying to tell me that the first law of thermodynamics was violated? And he goes, absolutely not. And I said, I think we're on the same page then, right? And he goes, maybe. (laughs) But anyway... So Hawking definitely came up with some creative explanations for a godless beginning for the universe. One was his imaginary time theory. You kind of referenced that a a bit ago. Let me read to you a quote from I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist from uh, Turek and Geisler. They write, Other atheistic attempts at explaining how the universe exploded into being out of nothing are just as flawed. For example, in an effort to avoid an absolute beginning of the universe— Hawking made up a theory that utilizes imaginary time. We could just as well call it an imaginary theory because Hawking himself admits that his theory is just a metaphysical proposal that cannot explain what happened in real time. In real time, he concedes, the universe has a beginning. In fact, according to Hawking, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. So by his own admission, Hawking's imaginary theory fizzles when applied to the real world. Imaginary time is just that, purely imaginary. What do you think about that statement and that rebuttal to this creative way of trying to get out of the cosmological argument? I do uh, deal with that in uh, The Creator and the Cosmos, uh, making the point that uh, imaginary time is something that flows out of complex variables. That's mathematics that you take uh, at a university, um, basically making the point that There are problems we can solve if we invoke imaginary dimensions uh, to complement the real dimensions. So it actually has application in mathematics. And I was involved in a lot of that mathematics uh, myself, and it's very useful. Uh, But you're basically hypothesizing uh, these extra dimensions. 
And that's what Hawking and Hartle were doing. They're saying, well, let's speculate that in addition to the universe being governed by real time, it's also governed by imaginary time. And basically they're saying that maybe the universe is structured by the equivalent of two time dimensions rather than one time dimension. And yeah, you're right. In a brief history of time, Hawking admitted that there is no actual physical evidence uh, that there would be the equivalent of the second dimension of time. All the evidence says the universe is constrained to one dimension. Everything is constrained to linear time. In fact, it's more constraining than that. It's a single dimension of time where time can never be stopped or reversed. And in that kind of universe, the universe really does have a beginning of time, which implies a causal agent beyond time. And so really what Hawking and Hartle are doing here is they're attributing to the universe properties that only God possesses. And this is not a new idea. Paul addresses this in the book of Romans, chapter 1, where he makes the point that those who reject the authority of God over their lives will attribute to the realm of nature properties that only God possesses. It's just that now in the 21st century, we get some people who are doing that in a very sophisticated way that a lot, lot of lay people don't even recognize what's going on. Hawking was uh, an advocate of M-theory and its uh, proposal of a multiverse. Which one's that perspective? He didn't use God because of his multiverse. Well, there's many M-theories and there's many string theories and uh, other uh, complex theories to explain particle physics. These theories are basically invoked to try to unify cosmology with particle physics. And uh, there's literally uh, a very large number of possible ways that can be done. And some of those ways are compatible with the multiverse speculations that we talked about earlier. And I mentioned the fact that the multiverse explains too much. But what I find interesting is that a lot of people say, well, we're free to speculate because this is beyond what we scientists can, can measure or test. And that's true. Einstein's theory of relativity tells us once you've got observers in universe A, the space-time manifold of that universe can never overlap the space-time manifold of another possibly existing universe, which means there's no way through measurements we can term, determine the existence of another universe. If God made ten, we can only know about the one. Or if God made an infinite number, again, we can only know about one. But there is one way we can test the atheist version of the multiverse. And I mention that because there are consistent Christian models of the multiverse. But the atheist model is basically saying, if we make all the universes different from one another with different sets of laws of physics, then we could explain away the fine-tuning design of the universe by saying we happen to be lived in the one universe that is the lucky chance that allows us to exist here. But if that's really the case, uh, that this is just a lucky chance, then we would expect that the more we learn about the properties of the universe, uh, the less compelling will become the fine-tuning design argument for the benefit of human beings. But if indeed the universe was fine-tuned design by a supernatural being beyond space and time, we would expect that the more we learn about the universe, the more significant will become the fine-tuning design. 
And this is something we've been researching and reasons to believe since 1991. And since 1991, as we survey the scientific literature, the evidence for supernatural, superintelligent fine-tuning design has gone up exponentially. And just to throw it a number, it goes up by at least a factor of a thousand times per month. Wow. Which is why when I speak on university campuses, I'll frequently say to the skeptics, if you're not convinced today that the God of the Bible created the universe, wait one month and see which way the evidence goes. And yeah, for the last 30 years, it's been going in the exact opposite direction that you would predict from an atheistic perspective. So, so M theory is not empirically verifiable, but even if it would, would it prove a purely naturalistic explanation for the universe? One thing I've added in the Creator and the Cosmos, the new edition, is a chapter on how to respond to non-empirical arguments uh, for atheism and agnosticism, basically making the point that the empirical evidence today is so overwhelming and so compelling uh, that atheist scientists are now appealing to that which is purely speculative, to that which is beyond our capacity to know and understand. So I include in that chapter some tools for believers in God and how to persuade people who are taking those kinds of approaches that they need to really focus their beliefs on that which we can know and understand and to look at the trend lines. If the trend line with increasing empirical measurements is in favor of theism, then you need to move in that direction. And I use the analogy of, uh, you know, getting married. You know, I married my wife with strong empirical evidence that she existed, but it wasn't absolute proof. You know, I could have been free to speculate uh, based on things that are impossible to know and understand that maybe she doesn't really exist. Maybe I've been fooled all these years by a very sophisticated hologram. But I can tell you after 40 years of marriage, the empirical evidence that she is real, that she really exists, is exponentially greater than it is on the day that we got married. And all the empirical evidence sustains from the fact that she exists. Likewise, 100% of the empirical evidence tells us that the universe has a beginning, a beginning that implies a cause beyond the universe that brought it into existence. And so whenever we run into a non-empirical argument against our Christian faith, I think we need to encourage people, let's actually look at the evidence. Let's put it to the test and hold to that which proves itself to be true. You know, we've interviewed one of your co-workers, Dr. Jeff Zwierink, one of the members of your ministry, on the topic of the multiverse in the past. And, of course, he's uh, famous for his question, who's afraid of the multiverse? And, of course, we don't have to be afraid of that. Even if it were true, I think it's also, and I don't have enough faith to, to be an atheist, they say even if the multiverse were true, it would create an even bigger problem for the atheist because they can't even disprove God in this universe and the task of disproving him in an infinite number of theoretical universes that they can't even survey would be surely an impossible task, making atheism that much more impossible. Yeah, what Jeff does in his book, Who's Afraid of the Universe, he shows that from a Christian worldview perspective, you can construct a consistent multiverse model. But in an atheistic context, you're forced into a model 
that has inherent contradictions. So on that basis, the atheistic version of the multiverse is self-defeating. He also points out that all multiverse models are subject to the space-time theorems. You don't avoid God. It's simply a way of avoiding God as a personal designer. So and that's why a number of physicists, including Lawrence Krauss himself, has made the concession in his books that deism is on the scientific table. It can't be taken off the table uh, because, in part, of the force of the space-time theorems. The multiverse doesn't avoid God. It's simply an attempt to avoid concluding a personal, caring, loving God. So how would you summarize Dr. Hawking's attempts at providing an atheistic answer for the beginning of the universe? Well, I think it all goes back to what he said in uh, his best-selling book, A Brief History of Time, where he declared that his goal in life was to know everything that God knows. And he says, I don't just mean a theory of everything, like physicists talk about, a theory we've got a complete understanding of the four forces of physics. He says, I really do mean everything. Everything God knows, everything about the past, everything about the future. Uh, I want to know about how God predetermines everything. And when I read that uh, back in 1988, I said, wow, that's what Satan tempts every human being with. You can be like God. You can know everything that God knows. And that's what made me, uh, you know, concerned about Stephen Hawking from a spiritual perspective, that he was emulating uh, the quest that uh, we see in uh, the person of Satan in the first few chapters of the Bible. You know, you can be smart and wrong. There was an atheist that I debated several years ago in about four campus debates, and he was probably one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. I think he went on to pursue a Ph.D., but he was definitely wrong, and I remember thinking to myself just how somebody that can be so smart could actually follow a bias into some really wrong conclusions, and none of us would say that Stephen Hawking was anything less than a genius, but I think we all realize that he followed his atheistic bias um, down a wrong road. My hope is that somehow, before he died— he came full circle and uh, met our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, wouldn't that be a great story if that came out to hear? I mentioned that in my uh, Facebook post of March 14th, is that, you know, as a pastor, I've seen some amazing changes in the spiritual state of human beings hours before they die. You know, when you're facing death and you know it's coming really soon, often that's when people get really serious about their spiritual state for the first time in their life. And I said, only God knows what was happening in Stephen Hawking's mind in the last few hours of his life. So I'm not going to say he's definitely uh, rejected God. There's a possibility, but it is true. If you look at the latter part of his life, he moved from a deistic worldview perspective to an atheistic worldview perspective. And certainly his public statements uh, were emphatically atheistic in the last decade of his life. So who knows what happened in those last few hours. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's show with Dr. Hugh Ross as we remembered Stephen Hawking. And I hope that you realized as we picked apart some of Hawking's rebuttals to our faith that his rebuttals to our faith 
aren't valid and that the evidence for our faith is strong. I would pray that right now, if you haven't already taken a step to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that you would do that today. Why wait another day? Come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins, and that you rose again to give me eternal life. Today, I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. The Bible is very clear that if you took that step today, that you are God's child, that you've been adopted into his family, and that you can look forward to an eternity with him in heaven and a life full of meaning and purpose here on this earth. Well, if you enjoyed what you heard from Dr. Ross, definitely tune back in next week to hear more. But also, go to reasons.org to find out more about Dr. Ross and his team. He has a team of scientists and apologists that do a lot of good work. You could also pick up the most recent update of his book, The Creator and the Cosmos, wherever you buy books. You could get it at Amazon or wherever else you buy books. You know, I hope that you'll also go to godsolutionshow.com, leave some feedback, let us know what you think about the show, maybe even check out some past episodes. We have over 350 shows online that you could get interviews with some of the greatest Christian apologists out there today. So I hope that you'll go to godsolutionshow.com. Like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.